Welcome to Study Religion, the podcast of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Alabama. I am Professor Mike Altman. I'm joined today. I have a co-host because we bought more microphones. I'm joined today by uh, Nathan Lowen. Nathan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Yeah, this is a very like fresh air vibe all of a sudden. Um, and this is also we're, we're trying out new microphones, a whole new system. So we'll see how this works. Hopefully this sounds good. Uh, Nathan, the reason I brought you here, do you know why I brought you here? Yes. Why? <laughs> because I have some fabulous <laughs> students uh, in REL 502 from the fall at, in the master's program at the Department of Religious Studies here. And they've made some brilliant podcasts that I'd like to share with the world. Yeah. Before we dive into these two podcast episodes, uh, I wanted to uh, Roger, I wanted to talk to you about the class. So... Um, I've taught this class a couple times. You taught it for the first time. Um, it's uh, a class required for all of our master's students. Uh, what, having just taught it, what what is the 502 class? What's it called? What's it about? Well, it's one of the core courses in the MA program at the Department of Religious Studies, and the intended focus of it is to have students learn about the public humanities and the digital humanities, sort of an entree to both of those and to also help students um, be equipped with a skill set that would allow them to apply what they've learned in the course across whatever sorts of professional or academic circumstances they might find themselves in. So um, if I'm a prospective MA student at Alabama or I'm looking at MA programs, what's the thing about 502 like that makes it different from what I might take in other, you know, other, you know, every, every master's student probably takes three courses of the semester. Like what's, is there something, what's the, what sell me on this course and why it would be useful to me or why I should think about it? Well, it's really hands-on. Uh, we do a lot of experimentation. So perhaps that's like a lot of seminars other people have experienced, perhaps not, but we spend a lot of time mucking around with things, futzing with stuff, fiddling around, seeing what works and what doesn't. That applies to the ideas and concepts as well as the tools that we use. Um, so what? Uh, so you and you sat in the first time I taught it. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and how do have you seen? Because you sat in the first two semesters when I did it, and then now you've done it yourself. What do you see? Like, what do you think um, the evolution of the class has been over the last three years? As as you've taken over, as you've seen, sort of saw what I was doing. I think the evolution has been really organic uh, in terms of what my interests are versus perhaps what yours are. We are talking on a podcast right now, and I know okay. that you wrote an article about podcasts in religious studies. That's one of the things that I kept in the class. I think there's a lot to be learned in making a podcast, and you can apply those skills to video. You can also apply those skills to other digital projects as well. So perhaps one thing that we kept was the podcast element, but one thing that changed was an additional emphasis on helping students think through project development as well as project management. Um, yeah, what, so what do you think, uh, looking back on the semester last year, uh, last semester, how do you think, how did students react to these tools? Were there some that you thought, because podcasting is one of them, um, can you talk about some of the other ones and what, what do you think students really were attracted to? What do they find difficult? What do they think was most useful, least useful? Well, like I said, we do a lot of experimentation in the class. And so when it comes to the digital humanities tools, the emphasis was not 
necessarily learn tool X, but rather we talked about some of the methods behind what's going on, and then we did small entrees into those methods. I think overall, the way I would characterize the relevance of digital humanities across the disciplines is that it fulfills what Bruce Lincoln said is the nature of scholarship anyhow. Lincoln said, scholarship is just mythology with footnotes. And he's basically saying, show your work. And so in my emphasis in the course on project development and project management, I really was trying to emphasize that when you get technology involved in a humanities project, an important piece of the puzzle is to constantly be documenting and showing your work. Some people were not used to that. Um, others were, um, depending on their professional experience, perhaps in the jobs they'd had um, outside of the classroom. But that element of going beyond footnotes to actually talking about every piece of your design, what worked, what didn't, what you did to go back and rebuild it, why you're rebuilding it, what choices are you making, how were those choices revised based on the outcomes? That's the, the piece that was slightly different, and that's the part that perhaps was very new to people as well. Yeah, I think that's too. That's the part that you brought um, brought to the to the thing. I feel like I um, kind of you know every class is a, is a for me at least. I think for a lot of people is kind of an experiment. Like, well, th is this going to work or not? And one of the things that I've when I was kind of keeping my eye on what's happening and talking to students around about five hundred two is the way you were. Um, that emphasis on sort of project management and documenting what you're doing and thinking about sort of the thing as a long long term project was uh, a really helpful addition because I think my thing was just kind of like uh, let's play with this and see what happens and that was effective to some level but I think moving forward for these students who may want to go on to DH work at a, at a PhD level or who may go work in museum or some sort of historical heritage site like that larger organizational structure. Um, and that was really something really good I thought you brought uh, to the class. Yeah, and when it came to podcasting, I think one thing I'll do next year is we'll do a lot more experimentation. So that part that you just said you emphasized, I want to bring more of that back in. One of, the things I, one of the things that I did do differently, we had several people come in and talk about their art and craft of podcasting. So, for example, Chris Cotter from the Religious Studies podcast came in through Zoom. But then we also had some people from on campus here. So Dr. Heather Pleasance from the Office of Institutional Effectiveness came in to talk about digital storytelling and she did a second by second analysis of a few of her favorite podcast episodes. And then Holland Hobson from the New College um, also came in and talked about the difference between sound versus video and how that affects the way that you create context. And so um, both of them, Heather and Holland, you can really see in these podcasts that were done by these grad students in 502 that they took those lessons to heart and really worked at creating context and, and telling the story and adding in those kinds of elements that really produced, I think, um, a lot more depth uh, to what they were doing. They, they went back, they, went, they dialed back the scholarship side. That was just the bedrock and emphasized the narrative and the context side. And I think that really produced some excellent work. So uh, I have two I have two questions before we dive uh, dive in and let turn on the turn on the podcast. The first one is, um, what uh, what do you see, and, and what discussions did, did came up when you were discussing with students about this? The role of podcasting in religious studies. I feel like it would let's have a very meta discussion about religious studies podcasting on a religious studies podcast because that sounds that's very on brand. Um, 
but what do you you know I've, I've written about it years ago but it's lots changed since then but what did you guys sort of see as like the possibilities for podcasting within the field I think this is where the public humanities versus digital humanities distinction comes in. We spent a lot of time trying to suss out the differences between those things. As I said, digital humanities, the useful part of it is that it asks you to show your work. The public humanities side is to ask the question, to whom do you want to show your work? And if you are interested in having a venue for your scholarship um, beyond your guild, or your group or the specific group of people who are interested in your methodology or your topic, uh, then you have to start talking about to whom do you want to show your work and podcasts are a great way to think that process through. So before we listen to these podcasts, what do you, um, what do you, what do you think we should know? Anything you want to say to kind of preview, introduce them? No. <laughs> I think they're great. They stand on their own. <laughs> um, great. Uh, well, so then we're going to turn it over. These are two episodes, uh, two short podcast episodes put together uh, by our students in REL 502. Thanks so much, Nathan. No problem. Glad to be here. Department of Religious Studies at the University of Alabama. This is the Million Dollar Podcast, where we explore the identity of the University of Alabama. To the title lower, going deep on his first throw to Smith. Hi, I'm Allison. And I'm Morgan. And I'm Anna. We were sitting around wondering whether or not Alabama football fans actually know the traditions that they experience. I've been an Alabama football fan since I can remember. Even though I grew up in Virginia and eventually in Texas, my mom always raised me as an Alabama football fan. She attended the university in the 80s, and my grandmother also graduated from the University of Alabama. My uncle still even lives in Tuscaloosa. So when we decided to do a podcast about traditions of Alabama football, I was all for it, and I thought I knew exactly what to expect. So I didn't have the quote-unquote Alabama experience uh, during my undergrad. I went to a D3 school with a much smaller uh, sports program than Alabama has. And so when I came to Alabama's first football game of the season with Morgan and our friend Ellie it was a totally different experience um the fan experience is kind of crazy they just grab you by the hand here and bring you to a tailgate <laughs> I don't know what's happening but I kind of like it I was actually born in Alabama although I didn't live here until I came to the University of Alabama in 1990 to teach so I've had 30 years of lived experience with Alabama football. That's mostly why I stay in my house in Alberta City now. 
So as students of religious studies, we look at tradition a bit differently than most people. We consider it to be constructed social norms, perhaps created generations ago, and still viable, although changed through time. Almost like a game of telephone. So we decided to put traditions to the test. We went to campus on game day and asked tailgaters a series of questions, all of which had something to do with Alabama football traditions. One of the questions we asked was why do we say Roll Tide? The funny thing about the term Roll Tide is that most people assume that it's just attached to football. But if you live in Alabama, especially the mid to north Alabama area where Roll Tide is a common term in everyday life, often, like my grandchildren, their first word is Roll Tide. People use it as a greeting, Roll Tide saying hello, or Roll Tide saying goodbye. So it doesn't have a whole lot to do with football most of the time, and off the field, I guess one would say. Roll Tide is such a common term down here that ESPN even made a commercial to illustrate how Roll Tide is used in everyday life. It's such an honor, Roll Tide. By Marion Daisy, Roll Tide. You will always be remembered, Roll Tide. So we went to the quad on game day and asked tailgaters why we say Roll Tide. It's just something that you chant to bring people together. I don't know. Oh man, it's something about a guy at like halftime that was like, he saw the elephants storming through. He's like, oh, we got to roll tide. And they were like, oh, okay. Ooh. <laughs> I want to say it has something to do with Auburn, but I don't know. It's up my head. So when they were coming on, I don't remember who it was, but when they're coming on the field, they look like a, 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 a tide of uh, crimson coming out onto the field. Well, because our defense, well, no, it was, uh, again, 1930s time. There were waves and waves of crimson. And so that's the roll tide. So origins are messier than expected, which we should have known. Scholars like Jay-Z Smith and Bruce Lincoln have examined this very phenomenon. Origins are contingent and contestable and complicated. The problem isn't which origin of Roll Tide is correct. We can't time travel and see for ourselves after all. But which narrative becomes dominant? Roll Tide is a phrase so well known that ESPN made a commercial about it. Yet most Bama fans are reluctant and unsure of which story is the right story. But I don't know. I don't remember who it was, but- He's a lawyer, he knows more than I do. I don't really know. I didn't know I was getting quizzed. To my best recollection. No, am I wrong? I can't remember his name. I don't know. I don't know. I got no wrong answers. <laughs> the university's identity then is made up of signifiers with no absolute origin. But still, we tell these tales to create a legacy. This is the university where legends are made. Thanks for listening. And roll tide. rights to some of the sound clips used in this podcast. All rights reserved to the original owners. Coming to you live from the University of... Oh, wait, we're not live. Cut. Coming to you from the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. In the Religious Studies Department. Located in scenic Manly Hall. 
due one week from now for our digital humanities class. Welcome to a new podcast we're calling Machina Ex Deus. The name, as you may recognize, is a twist on the phrase Deus Ex Machina, which refers to a certain type of literary device. Today, though, we'll be shooting for the literal instead of the literary. Is there a place for machines and robots inside religious spaces, which have, until now, been considered a purely human activity? My name's Jack Bernardi. And my name's Jeremy New. Thanks for joining us on this journey of discovery. And enjoy the show. So, originally, this was going to be a podcast about math history. Jeremy and I both have math backgrounds from undergrad, and we really miss talking about that stuff now that we're in a humanities department. But then we realized uh, it's really hard to do a podcast about math since there's no visual reference. So our plan B was to indulge in our love of sci-fi. We're both fans of movies like Ex Machina, Blade Runner, and even Futurama, where robots exist alongside humans as social agents. Since we're religion students, the intersection seemed obvious. Let's talk about whether or not robots can have something called religion. In our hunt for data, we found that Andrew Mark Henry of the lovely Religion for Breakfast channel on YouTube had already done a video on something kind of close to what we were thinking. We live in an increasingly automated world. Automated cars, automated baristas, but what about automated priests? Can a robot carry the gravitas that a priest carries with him? Will society ever grant artificial intelligence with the recognition of ritual expertise? I'm personally skeptical. Being the sci-fi nerds that we are, Jeremy and I were curious about Henry's skepticism. What would it take for a machine to be recognized as having that gravitas, as having personhood? Originally, we started emailing church groups on campus, but no one got back to us in a timely fashion. We even reached out to some of our old uh, professors, but we're left in the cold. Come on, guys, it's for our class. Left with our own assumptions and surroundings to analyze this data, we sat down with fellow MA students Savannah Finver and Kyle Ashley to explore the question of whether or not robots are capable of something called belief. Supposing that, like, that robots and humans, we have to kind of tackle what are the differences between a robot and human, because we like to think humans as having self-agency, right? They can impact the world around them, um, while robots are kind of fed instructions and perform those things out. I think I know how my friend would respond, um, and I think he would say what really differentiates us between uh, humans, quote-unquote, right, and robots, quote-unquote, is the conception, and at least in Christianity, of Imago Dei and also in Judaism, uh, right, where, that they are created within the image of God. Mm. And so I think he would point towards that robots themselves are not created within the image of God, right? that's true but also they are created in the image of man yeah right extent. and if man is created in the image of god we can go back to that derrida quote about derivations is it just a different iteration of god mm-hmm. because it's designed to be like man which was designed to be like god our conversation with savannah and kyle left us wondering what are we talking about when we try and distinguish something called a robot from something called a human the next day, we went to Gorgas Library to talk to our department library liaison, James Gilbreth. So offhand, well, with the interiority thing in particular, I mean, if um, you have, as soon as you have a machine that passes believability as being another human being, 
at that point, you could make the argument that it can evince interiority because, I mean, we can't really tell. Um, just from like a qualitative standpoint, what are some of the traits that like you personally would look to as being markers of like a convincing performance of humanity? Um, that's interesting. Um, one, uh, can there be randomized errors in the, the transaction of whatever it is, which would add you know, some believability to it? Um, if it performs the same action perfectly every time, I guess what it's getting at is there has to be some humanity to it, however you want to define that. Um, because like personally for me, as someone who's not a particularly religious person, but likes the idea of um, ritual and stuff like that, there has to be a human element to it. Otherwise, it's just, it's, it's seems kind of hilarious somehow, and I can't put my finger on exactly why. As we walked back to Manly Hall, Jeremy and I felt stumped. It still didn't seem like we had a sense of what the difference between machines and humans, the difference essential to our podcast premise, was all about. What was that element of humanity that Dr. Gilbreth, not unlike Dr. Henry, felt that rituals required? Out of our wits, we went to visit Department Chair Russell McCutcheon, who was feeding cardinals from his office on the second floor. Although he declined to be interviewed, he pointed us in a key direction. First off, where did the words robot and machine even come from? We hadn't stopped to think about it. The term robot was first coined in a 1920 play by Czech writer Karel Čepek. The term derived from the Czech word robotnik or robata, which refers to a certain type of slave labor in the feudal system. So in that sense, the term robot explicitly defines itself against the human, relating to what humans are capable of as abstracted from human bodies. Machine comes from the Greek machina, and generically refers to any type of system, structure, tool, or even a trick or contrivance. So in that sense, while humans both have and use machines, we could also very well say that humans have a machine equality themselves, as Kyle noted in our conversation. Reviewing these definitions forced us to ask what we were expecting to find interviewing those church groups we had previously emailed. Informing our questions about the comparison of humans and machines, did we put the cart before the horse? Rather than talk about machine priests, why didn't we, as Dr. McCutcheon suggested, simply ask, when was the last time you interacted with a robot? Posed in a more open-ended way, we could find out whether people saw robots as everyday or as unfamiliar objects to begin with. Have you heard of the uncanny valley? It's a phenomenon relating to our perception of human-like objects, like robots. As an object gains anthropomorphic qualities, it becomes more familiar to us, more likable, more human. Like, imagine a regular old rock. Let's say I drew a smiley face on there. Now it's kind of cute. Maybe I'll name it. But at a certain point, if we keep adding these human-like traits, the object starts to become creepy and unfamiliar. And now we're getting into the territory of weird porcelain dolls, or like wax models, or the CGI in the Polar Express movie. What is it about the space of the uncanny valley where robots are almost like us, but not quite, that provokes such discomfort? 
And might it be related to why we see robots as inherently challenging the unique status of human beings? Much like the etymology of the word robot is a category defined in relation to those things we consider human activities. Jeremy? Yeah? I think we have to scrap the podcast idea. Again? No, we can't. It's due tomorrow. But we were all wrong. Our podcast isn't about robots at all, or even religion. Then what's it about? Humanity! It's the, about the tools, the tactics, the codes that make us, us. No, man, that's way too big of a topic. We can't do a podcast on that. Oh, crap, I think you're right. Well, we can always chalk it up to human error? I, I don't think he's going to buy that either. But then, just when all hope seemed lost, on the day the podcast was due, we found someone, other than a friend, classmate, or professor, who was willing to talk to us. I'm Reverend Ruth Van Lillian. I'm the minister of the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Tuscaloosa. Well, or AI. we started out talking about funerals. Mm -hmm. um, and that took us then, I, I said, well, it makes a lot more sense for weddings because many people seem to be just looking for a very basic perfunctory wedding ceremony, uh, sort of a one size would fit anybody. And this, the ceremony and the officiant are the last things that they are looking for. If, if a couple want um, more than going through the motions of a ceremony, then I don't think, at least nothing that I observe now or can imagine in the near future in terms of AI, would be able to you know, counsel a couple on the dynamics of their relationship. You know, I mean, the, the wedding is one thing, and it's become quite a performance. And you can set up a performance uh, with, uh, you know, the right staff, and that staff could be AI. But uh, are you going to go back to the AI when, you know, you and your spouse are in tears and it seems like the end of the world? For Reverend Van Lillian, it wasn't a question of whether robots passed this invisible litmus test of humanity. It was a practical question of how well the machine and its capabilities were suited to the task at hand. In this way, we think, the conversation shifts. It's no longer, what is a human, but instead, what can a human do? Before we could even go out in the world and figure out what machines are doing to alter the ways humans practice religion, we had to settle a much more basic question. What's a robot? And when does it encroach on that so-called human domain? Perhaps we shall explore it on our next episode, if we ever make it. Join us next time on Deus Ex Machina, where the podcast might have a totally different name, a new topic, and a new set of guests. In fact, the only thing that will probably remain the same is the host. Maybe we should call it Podcast of Theseus. Once again, my name is Jack Bernardi. And my name is Jeremy Newt. Songs for the podcast were produced by Wesley Shiplett, with additional sounds contributed by freesound.org users Inspector J and Sunsai. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.
Study Religion is a production of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Alabama. For more information on our department, go to www.religion.ua.edu or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash rel at ua. Have a comment or question about the podcast? You can email us at religiousstudies at ua.edu or reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at at studyreligion. The Instagram has lovely pictures of squirrels. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a comment and a rating. Or we are now on Spotify, so make sure you subscribe there too. Study Religion is produced by me, Mike Altman, with help this week from Keely McMurray, our MA student and American Examples fellow. Special thanks to Professor Nathan Lowen and our graduate students, Morgan Frick, Allison Isidore, Anna Schuber, Jeremy Newt, and Jack Bernardi. Our opening theme is Two Minute Warning by Stefan Kartenberg, and this closing theme is Saturday Night by Texas Radio Fish. Both are used under Creative Commons license. Thank you for listening, and roll tide. So, Nathan, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Toad in the hole. What? Toad in the hole. <laughs> what is <laughs> What is that? I have no idea.